If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. We are delighted to gather every Sunday to open up God's Word together. Um, I trust you've already uh, experienced a lot of what the message is about this morning. Uh, We like to say at Harvest um, that we take God very seriously here uh, and ourselves not so seriously. Uh, I think you've seen a little bit of that both already this morning. Um, By the way, for the record, Jordan, it's not called not moving on. It's called losing. Just so you know. I just want to be clear. But yes, my team lost the week before, so we're okay. We can all commiserate together. It's going to be an interesting staff meeting this week. Okay. Back to taking God seriously. (laughs) I want to get into reading the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. You can borrow the one that's in the rack in the pew in front of you. We're in the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, which is a series of, of sermons that we've been doing walking through this New Testament book together. We started before Christmas. We've taken a, a three-Sunday break through the holiday seasons, and we're picking up the second half of this series now. So we're, we're kind of at a place where we're reacquainting ourselves with the book of 1 Timothy. So if you've been with us from the beginning, this will be a good kind of reminder. If you've come in, and maybe this is your first time here, if you've come in a little bit later, this will get you all caught up. Um, getting back into this book, which is really all about how a church like ours can put Jesus Christ on display to the world around us. I want to read the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, It's a short chapter, 16 verses. I'm going to read it uninterrupted uh, in length. Um, We've done this for a while in our worship services where we take the passage of scripture we're going to look at and we read it without commentary, uninterrupted, just to hear God's word read as it's written. And then we'll go back and kind of pick it apart. And we do that in part because this very passage tells churches to give attention to the public reading of God's word. It's important to hear what God has said, and so let's read this uh, together. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. If you put these things into practice before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the knowledge of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. So command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word for us this morning. Father God, I want to ask again that you would reveal yourself to us and through me. Um, use what has been planned, reject what has, is not helpful. I pray that you'd focus my own heart and mind and that you'd focus our hearts and minds not on my words but on yours because we've come to hear not from a man but from God. And so we ask for your blessed revelation of yourself to us today. In Christ's name, amen. It was a um, predictably busy week at the gym this week. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's January. It's still early. Well, we're kind of getting into mid-January now, but this past week, uh, it's kind of like the first full week of January, and sure enough, I go to the gym like I normally do a couple times early in the morning, 
this past week, and um, I had to wait to use a couple pieces of equipment that I normally use that I'd never have to wait for. And I suddenly noticed it's a little louder in here, it's a little fuller in here, there's a lot more bodies in the gym. Not surprisingly, uh, always happens this time of year. Uh, people get back to the gym, they start exercising again. Of course, it'll be interesting to see how long it lasts. Uh, how many of these new faces start to become familiar because they stick with it over months or how many people kind of tail out and, and disappear almost as quickly as they showed up. But maybe because of that, um, you know, we talk a lot in this culture about New Year's resolutions, start of a new year, man, looking back on last year, maybe liked it, maybe hated it, maybe somewhere in between. Beginning of a new year, like, hey, think about some things you want to change, things you want to improve about your life, make some, set some goals, make some commitments, and get going. And for a lot of people, that's like physical fitness. I'm going to start getting to the gym. I'm going to start eating better. I'm going to start taking care of myself. And people act on it. They start living it out. And oftentimes, New Year's resolutions get kind of a bad rap in our culture. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. I actually think it's a perfectly fine thing. It's, you know, when I show up at the gym and I see extra people, I don't think, oh, here's all the resolution crowd, you know. You can get on your high horse real fast, can't you, right? <laughs> yeah, be interesting to see how long they last. They're not going to stick it out like, you know, well, me. You know, it, it's weird. We don't think of ourselves as arrogant people, but like instantly I can be a total jerk if I'm not really careful. And I don't generally think that. Like my, my first thought is like, hey, I don't know who some of these folks are. There's some younger and fairly fit people. There's some other people who are clearly very unhealthy. There's a lot of older people who are 70s, 80s, even older, and they're there just... And my thought is like, man, good for them. <laughs> like I hope, it, I hope it sticks. I hope they make it work because they're here trying to do something and take care of themselves. That's great. That's great. It's helpful to stop periodically and reassess things in life and make course corrections. Sometimes the calendar makes us do that. Sometimes just circumstances in life make us do that. Something blows up or doesn't go well and we go like, whoa, I need to start rethinking some stuff. Whether it's getting to the gym or any number of other areas of life, that can be a healthy thing. And when we run into passages of scripture like this, you suddenly start to realize that while the phrase New Year's resolution never appears in the Bible... Not surprisingly, uh, the Bible actually encourages that kind of thinking for us as Christian people. To stop periodically and reassess how are things going in my life? What am I doing spiritually? How is my relationship with God? Am I living the purposes that He has for me? <clears throat> and maybe I need to look at that and stop, and if necessary, make some adjustments, some fresh commitments. That's really what this morning's passage is all about. Now, just to reset kind of our study of 1 Timothy just a little bit, uh, I'll remind us that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young man that he mentored named Timothy, all back in the first century. As such, um, it, it has a very first-person um, flavor to it. A lot of the New Testament books are written to churches, so they're addressed to groups, congregations like us. This one is a little bit different in that it was written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. It's a personal letter. Paul had left Timothy in the first century city of Ephesus, which is a pretty large, influential city where he had started a church, and the church was growing, but it had problems. Paul sent Timothy back there to kind of like fix the problems and help teach them the right way to believe in God and how to live right. So, it is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, but it's, it's easy to read a book like this and say, there's so much direct instruction from Paul to Timothy that like, well, I'm not a church leader and I'm certainly not Timothy, so what does this have to do with me? And of course, the answer is, if you're a Christian, it has everything to do with you and me because you and I are members of a local church, in our case, Harvest. And these are instructions not just to Timothy, but how Timothy is to lead a local church. And so there are instructions for all churches at all times here, and that's how we're approaching this. The basic thrust of the instructions we've been uh, going back to repeatedly is simply this. This kind of one little graphic, I would say, sort of summarizes the entire message of the six chapters of the book of 1 Timothy, and it's simply this. What a church believes determines how that church behaves, which in turn determines who the world beholds. That's the message of the book. That's what God is trying to get us to understand in this book as Christian people in our church today. Are we believing right things about God? Are we thinking thoughts about God that are actually accurate, they're true? Or are we coming to believe some things about God that aren't true? He's not there. He's not good. He doesn't care. Whatever. So are we believing the right things? Because what we believe ultimately determines how we live. We act on what we believe is true. That's just human nature. 
And so as a group of Christian people in a church like Harvest, are we believing right things about God? Because if we are, then we're going to be living in a way that reflects right things about God. And that way, when we interact with people who are not part of our church, when they hear us speak and when they watch our lives, they're going to get a picture of who Jesus is by how we live. But if God's own people in his churches aren't believing right things about him, then people who are not in churches are going to get wrong messages about God as they watch the way that we live. The whole purpose of this, we've titled the sermon series, House Rules, How a Church Organizes Itself and Behaves to Put Jesus on Display. We saw that image in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we ended with that just before Christmas, of the church as a pedestal, so to speak. And what are we putting on the pedestal? That's kind of the question. What is Harvest Community Church and our members putting on the pedestal for people to see? Who do they see when they look at us? Do they see us making a big deal out of ourselves? Do they see us celebrating our favorite political party or our favorite cause? Or do they see us celebrating Jesus Christ? A church is a pedestal that is to put on display the message that Christ is king for all the world to see. So that's what the book of 1 Timothy is all about. And we kind of hit this halfway point, and now chapter 4 kind of picks up again and begins talking about this by introducing the idea that as a church goes about trying to figure out how to put Jesus on display, there are some dangers. There are some dangers. We've got to make sure that we're actually thinking right things about God because there are a lot of wrong ideas about God that are out there constantly. And that's where this passage starts. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, look, there's an enemy out there. He's reminding Timothy, there's an enemy out there. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, by the way, that's a technical term in the New Testament. That's now. That's from the first century on. People will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, lying lying spirits, and the teachings of demons. So there's an enemy out there deliberately trying to spread misinformation and false information about God. Not everything everybody who claims to be a Christian says about God is actually true. And so there's, there's some discernment that's needed here, what's really true about God and what's not. Now, what's kind of interesting is that he says that this is teaching of, of like, you know, demons, Satan is behind this. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, it's easy to assume that, well, if Satan comes up and starts like teaching, you know, whatever, Jesus isn't God or you shouldn't worship God or whatever, like I could, I could spot that error a mile away. <laughs> I mean, I would never fall for like satanic teaching or Satanism or something. That's really obvious. It's easy to avoid. But it turns out it's a lot more subtle than that. In verse 2, he says, people, Christians, professing Christians, follow these teachings through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now he's talking about people, not demons. He's talking about people whom he calls liars. They're speaking untruths about God and they're teaching them as if they're true. Now you'll recall from earlier in the book of 1 Timothy, we know now who he's talking about. So much of the teaching in this book was aimed at false teachers who were active in that first century church, and they were getting up on Sunday, like I'm doing right now, and opening up the Bible and saying, here's what you need to believe about God. And they were were teaching lies, but people in the church didn't know any different, and so they were believing lies. And he's saying, ultimately, that's Satan. It's a subtle thing. you got to be on guard against it, lest you become one of these people that fall away. You see, this is the warning that he has in mind. Next couple of verses, he just gives us a couple examples of the kinds of things that were being taught in that first century church. They're pretty different than the kind of stuff we wrestle with in a modern context, and so we won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's useful to see some of the things they were wrestling with in verse 3. He said they're forbidding things like marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Apparently, among the other things that they were teaching, some of these first century false teachers were saying, hey, if you want to be a super Christian, you want to be like really spiritual, you want to really get God to be happy with you, don't get married. Like, like seriously, that's what they thought. Don't get married. Marriage is sort of like this, it, it's the pursuit of, of human relationships and carnality. It's all wrong. It's all unspiritual. So the really spiritual people don't need marriage. They can just be single all their lives and be really super holy. Like that's what they were teaching. And they were also teaching, probably based on the Old Testament book of, Levit- of Leviticus, that if you really want to be a, a spiritual person, you don't eat certain foods. I mean, it's true that in the Old Testament, the Israelites were prohibited by God from eating things like shellfish and pork. And so they would say like, okay, so you don't eat certain foods to show that you're a really godly person. This is the kind of stuff that they were teaching. And the Apostle Paul says, that's all wrong. <laughs> that's all wrong. God created marriage and God created food and he made a lot of it taste good and he did that on purpose. He wants these things to be enjoyed. So they're wrong and I'm right. Now here's the question. How do we know that? 
How do we know that he was right and they were wrong? How do you tell? Verse 5 gives us the clue. It is made holy, that means acceptable, it's okay to do it, things like marriage and food, by the word of God and by prayer. Basically, here's how we know that the false teachers are wrong and Paul was right. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, uh, Jesus declared all foods clean. Again, that's Old Testament technical speak for it's okay. <laughs> you can eat anything you want. The Old Testament dietary restrictions no longer apply. And what's more, in Acts chapter 10, a couple of books later in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter receives a vision from God that communicates exactly the same thing. Those Old Testament dietary restrictions <clears throat> no longer apply. So if you just read the Bible and you see some other Christian telling you you're supposed to abstain from certain foods, you just read the Bible and say, you're wrong. And it actually, as much as I say this isn't really our issue, it's certainly not our issue here in this church, there are certain segments of... Um, certain kinds of churches and denominations that are still very heavily legalistic and really focus in on following Old Testament dietary restrictions, and they're just not reading the whole Bible. I don't know what else to say about it. It's wrong, not because that's my opinion. It's because that's what the Bible teaches. What's more, you think about marriage. Is marriage a, a lesser thing, or is it a greater thing? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The very first marriage between the first people is celebrated. It's, it's part of the, the whole created order that God says is very good before sin entered the world or anything went wrong. Marriage was there being celebrated right along with everything else. This is an inherent good. You don't read the Bible and come to the conclusion that marriage is lesser or certain foods should be abstained from, not if you're reading the whole thing. So the Bible is our guide. And so the basic idea here is that he's telling them you study the Bible for clear directions and you get principles from that. And then where the Bible doesn't directly address an issue, you pray carefully through God, how does that principle apply to this issue? And you trust that God is going to lead you in that. So that's what he was telling that first century church. Those were sort of some of their, their hang-ups and their false teachings that they were wrestling with. And that's really all sort of like the introduction to the, really the heart of this passage. That, that kind of moves us into the real heart. That, yeah, they had their specific issues that they were struggling with, and our specific issues in a modern context are a little bit different, but there's some core commonalities here, and this is where the Bible really speaks to a modern church like ours. The whole purpose of this, all the way back from verse 1, is to say to a church, guard yourself against being one of these people or one of these churches that ends up falling away and getting duped into believing things about God that aren't true. Guard yourself. You don't want to be one of those kind of people. There's a danger here that the Bible is trying to alert us to as Christians so that we can stay alert to it. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about danger is there's like two equal and opposite reactions to it, and both of them are unhealthy. One of the reactions is to be so worried about danger that you like lock up and you, it just paralyzes you and you don't move because you're so afraid of making a misstep and you're so afraid of what might go wrong. Some people are inclined to respond to danger that way. But the opposite reaction would be to be so um, sort of brashly overconfident in the face of danger that you assume, ah, that'll never happen to me. Oh, sure, people die in car accidents every day, but that'll never happen to me. And so you drive recklessly, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. And, and in that case, you can be so um, overconfident that you sometimes don't take adequate uh, care about the danger that is out there. This passage is all about helping Christians not fall into either trap, but take danger seriously. I'll never forget the day I saw both of those illustrations of danger, both those responses to danger, rather, illustrated at the same time, at the exact same moment, and it was on the side of a mountain. I was actually climbing Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. I've talked to some of you about that before. I know some of you have climbed up that great hike, if you can ever do it someday. It's awesome. This was the early 90s. I was with a group of college buddies, and we went to Yosemite one day, and we climbed Half Dome. And if you've ever seen pictures of it or if you've done that hike, you know that there's a long trail that gets you to the base of the huge lump of granite that everybody sees on the postcards. And then the last part of the climb is you got to go up the side of the thing. And it's pretty steep. Like, you don't need special climbing gear. It's not vertical or anything, but it's really steep, and it's just bare rock. And so what they have done is they've created this, like, cable um, pathway up the side of it. And I don't know if you can really tell in this picture, but that's the side of Half Dome. And that little trail of ants in the dead center of the page um, are not ants. They're actually hikers. So the trail leads you up to that spot. And what those guys are doing is they're climbing up this, these two little, like, cable links that are up there. This is a closer picture of them going up. So they like, drive these um, 
uh, posts, these steel posts into the side of the rock, and then they ran these cables through it. So it creates kind of like a loose handrail. And about every 20 feet, they'd bolted this two-by-four in there so that, you know, you can get some footing. And, and people just kind of slowly walk their way up. And it's, it's like going up a steep flight of stairs, you know, uh, and you can just grab on, and it's pretty safe. Um, but there are these cables there to hold on so that you don't slip and fall. And so many people have hiked up and down this thing that the rock is actually kind of worn down by hiking boots. It's, it's sort of slick. So, I mean, on a dry day, it's pretty safe. But here's the crazy thing. When you start going up, let me go back to this previous picture. You start going up, you get about halfway up it. This was my experience, at least. Um, the further away from you flat ground gets, the weirder it feels. <laughs> so I got about halfway up this thing, and I was suddenly hyper-conscious of space. I mean, I was on a solid piece of granite. I was totally on it. But it's like, you know, all off to the left and off to the right, there was nothing but open sky. And then you kind of start turning around. Like, I, for a while, I couldn't even look behind me because there was nothing but open sky behind me. It was kind of a trippy thing, so it gets a little bit scary. We got about halfway up this thing. Um, that's a picture of it from the top, looking down. So this is when you're climbing back down. And off to the left there, it goes down, I can't remember, several thousand feet. So it's just, it's kind of a, like, it's safe, but it's kind of freaky. It's pretty cool. You should try it sometime. Um, <laughs> we got like, so here's what happened. We got halfway up. We're going up this thing. And there's people going up it and people coming down. And you just kind of take your time. Everybody's going slow. And you can sort of pass each other on the way up. And now it's not a huge deal. Everybody's going slow. And we get there, and there's this guy blocking the path. Because he, he hit that point where space took over, and he freaked out. I don't know who this guy was. He's a total stranger. But he was sitting on one of those boards on his rear end, and he had one hand on the cable and another hand wrapped around one of those steel pipes. And he was just sitting there staring at his knees. He couldn't even look up and just... And I mean, he was shaking and he was panting. I mean, this guy was terrified. And people were sort of like slowly going around him, like, you okay? And he was just like, you know, I think he was embarrassed and all that, but more than embarrassed, he was just terrified, you know? We got to him and one of my buddies was in front of me and we started to kind of go around and my friend just finally goes, can I pray for you? And the guy's like, yeah. I don't know if he was religious or what, but he wasn't going to turn down any help, I guess, at this point. So like, my friend just prays for him and finishes, and the guy's like, thanks. And we're like, do, do you want us to... No, 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 no. I'm trying... All right, man. So we, just when we're getting ready to leave him, here's where the other thing happened. There's people coming down. So there's, there's this little bottleneck, you know, both going up and coming down. And I look up, and here comes two guys, backpacks, full climbing gear, or uh, hiking gear, and they're coming down the mountain, and they decided they wanted to go around it, so they just did. They jumped outside the cables, and they were like three or four feet on the outside, and they just start like skipping down the mountain, like really fast. Like, you know, if you were zooming downstairs real quick, you know, where you're, you're just hitting the stairs fast enough to keep a controlled fall, like that's what they're doing. They're going down this mountain, and they're just zooming along like, we're young, we're strong, we're awesome, we're better than all you, we don't need no cables, boom, and they're just zooming by. And the terrified guy actually looked up at them, and I'll never forget, I and mean, he just gasped with disgust. He couldn't believe what he was seeing with these two guys. And I just remember looking at them and watching their, their uh, backpacks kind of recede down the mountain, thinking, okay, I'm not terrified, but you guys are idiots. <laughs> I mean, that was really dumb. Like, really dumb. I mean, one misstep, and they could have tumbled and probably would have died. Um, and it's not perfectly even ground. I mean, it's bumpy rock and so on. I don't think they did, but um, just stupid. Two totally opposite reactions to danger. One person is so afraid of it, he's completely paralyzed and he can't even move. The other person is so unafraid of it, he's stupid, and he might get himself killed. I don't know what your tendency is in the face of danger, which one you tend toward. But the heart of this passage is to tell us as Christian people, like, um, use the cables. <laughs> there's, there's some safeguards here, Christian, as you're on this path to being the kind of church God wants you to be. There's, there's, this, there's some safeguards in place, so make use of them. Maybe this is a good time to stop and reflect on how I'm making use of these as a Christian. And the question is, well, what are the, what are the cables? Uh, Christians don't need to be paralyzed in fear that they're going to get something wrong so that we don't ever move on in our Christian life. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be brashly arrogant and assume that, well, I'll never fall away from God. I've got it all figured out. So what is it in the Christian life that keeps us on track? Verses 6 and 7. 
Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. The Apostle Paul goes for a, a physical fitness analogy here, right? If there had been gyms back in that day like we have them today, he probably would have started talking about joining a gym or something. I mean, he says, look, you need to think of yourself like, like an athlete physically training to accomplish a race or to achieve a goal or climb a big mountain or something. That's how you're to think of your Christian life, Timothy, and you're to teach people in the church to think of their lives individually and as a group in the same terms. Just as athletes undergo extensive training and endure pain and difficulty to make their bodies leaner, stronger, and perform better, so a Christian is to put forth effort and energy to train him or herself for not physical fitness, but spiritual fitness, to, to press that analogy, for godliness, to use the words here. It's interesting, he mentions in verse 8, that there is value in physical training, of course. Uh, while the bodily training is of some value, um, you do go physically train, and, and if you do, you might get leaner and stronger. Uh, you might feel much better. You might perform much better. Shoot, you might last longer. <laughs> There's a lot of very real, tangible benefits to physical training. The Bible's like, that's a good thing. And yet, godliness training, again, to make that analogy that, that's being made here, is even more valuable because it not only holds promise for this life, just like physical training does, but it holds promise for all eternity. Knowing who God is and having a relationship with him will not only benefit me right now as he teaches me the way to go, as he empowers me with his spirit to live the kind of life he means for me to live, and as I can be assured of his confidence no matter what happens in my life, there's all of these incredibly rich benefits to knowing who Jesus is and having a relationship with him right now in this life. But it doesn't end there. Physical training is great, but here's the thing. No matter how many times you go to the gym, you're still going to die. The benefits of physical fitness are going to end at death sooner or later. The benefits of godliness don't end at death. They actually only increase when we get to be with God. So if we're to continue to use this analogy that the Bible has put before us and kind of think it through a little bit in practical terms for today, we might go about it this way. If you went to some kind of a you know, holistic health coach of some kind and said, you know what, this is, it is a new year, Man, I'm not as healthy as I want to be. I want to get healthier. Like, you know, come and use the first step. Help me put a plan together that's comprehensive. If they were a good health coach, they might address your request. They might address your training plan on a number of different levels. Uh, three immediately come to mind. Goals, uh, diet, and fitness, right? First of all, they're, they're probably going to say, like, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish to try to help you, you know, envision what you're after and even write down what you want? And the reason is obvious, right? Not only so that you can build a training program around those goals, but also so that you can keep that goal in front of you when the going gets rough, because it's going to get hard, and you're going to want to quit. So you put that goal in front of you to keep you going. So they help you set goals. Secondly, they'd probably look at your diet, right, if they're thinking about the whole thing. Um, we've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. So yeah, you, you want to take care of your body. You want to think about what you're putting in it. And then lastly, they're going to look at your exercise routine. How are you training your body to become fitter and healthier? So goals, diet, exercise, these are like some of the major obvious levels of how to take care of yourself. And if we're following this analogy through, the interesting thing is there are three aspects of godliness training that are listed in the rest of this passage, and they fairly closely parallel those because that's the parallel the Bible's working with here. The next three elements, or the, the three elements, sorry, of, of godliness training that we're going to see in the rest of this passage are uh, right vision, right doctrine, and right living. If I'm saying, okay, I want to hold the cables, <laughs> I want to be part of a church that's, that's living what God wants me to live, God, help me to, to, to be fit, help me do this godliness training, great, what am I supposed to focus on? This rest of this passage tells us this. You focus on right vision, right doctrine, and right living. Let's look at each of those briefly. Verses 8 to 10, right vision. It already started in verse 8 with what we talked about, this comparison with like, yeah, there's benefits to physical training, but there's even more benefits to um, godliness training. So if I'm a Christian who cares about taking care of my body, like, hey, good thing, <laughs> but take the same thought and apply it to the rest of your Christian life. And think about your whole church as well. I'm a member of this church. How can we be the fittest 
you know, pressing this analogy a little bit, but spiritual fitness church that we can be to put God on display. The saying, verse 9 tells us, is trustworthy and true. Now, let's just pause there and think about what's being said there in verse 9. This saying is trustworthy and true. That's a specific kind of formula in the book of 1 Timothy. We've run into this. This is now the third time in this book we've run into that phrase. This saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance. That's the Apostle Paul's way of going bold, underline, all caps, 24-point font, put a box around it, you get the idea, highlighter pen, like mark this one, take it to the bank, base yourself on like know this, stick this one on your refrigerator, hang this one from your rearview mirror, put this one as the wallpaper on your phone, like these are the key ideas that you want to take seriously and always keep in front of yourself and remind yourself of. The first time we ran into this phrase was in chapter 1 where he summarized the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a trustworthy saying. Man, just put that in front of yourself all times. Like, let that just define your worldview that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. That's who we are. The second time we ran into this phrase was at the beginning of chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul said, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, that is the leadership office in a church, he desires a noble task. The task of elders and church leadership is an incredibly important thing. This is a trustworthy saying. Man, if you're a church, you take that seriously. You put that in front of you. It's one of the reasons we talk a lot about church leadership here at Harvest. And then the third time is now here. What is the trustworthy and true statement here? It's verse 8. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The Bible's kind of telling us, like, man, if you're a Christian, like, you put that one on your refrigerator. You keep that in front of you at all times. You think in terms of the long-term goal that I want to experience joy in God's presence forever and I want to make his name known by how I live right here and now. How can I orient my life to do that? That's just a constant question that is to be driving us. That's what the Bible's telling us here. Why do you keep that long-term goal in mind? So that you can stay at it when the going gets tough. Because it's hard, isn't it? It is hard. Just like physical fitness. You know, when you're at your friend's house and you don't want to pass up that piece of cherry cobbler, even though you said you were going to start eating better. You don't want to roll out of bed at oh dark 30 to go get on the treadmill again. It's much more comfortable to just hit snooze button and roll over. You don't want to pass up the cobbler or get out of bed, but you do want to be healthy. And so if you can keep focused on that, it'll keep you moving. That's the idea here. The Bible says, guys, that's how God wired us. And so as churches, we always need to keep the right vision in mind. Before we start figuring out what we're going to do, what are we here for? And to be able to see and think about the glories of God, we fix our eyes on the truth that our story isn't done. Our story isn't done. The finish line will come. No matter how much pain, loneliness, heartache, disappointment, depression, or even the consequences of my own sinful choices, no matter how much of that stuff I have to endure before I get there, even though it feels like, man, heaven can never come soon enough, I will never get out of this, I can't make it through life, the truth is the finish line will come. All of it matters. None of it is meaningless. The God who said, every one of your tears, my children, I keep in my bottle, is with us in the midst of every single bit of pain and difficulty and discouragement we have to endure. And we feel like, it's just not worth it. I can't live for God. I can't figure it out. I'm not as good as so-and-so. Nothing has worked out the way I wanted. And then there's, what is it all for? What is it all for? It's not just about feeling a little bit of sweat or feeling the cold tile floor in the morning when I'd rather feel warm, fuzzy slippers. All of that is going toward a greater goal, that God would be glorified and I would enter his presence with open arms when he says, well done, well done. And so friends, like many of us are right now, when we are Christians and we're trying to follow God and figure it out and life is just not working, we're like, gosh, I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to be the right person. I'm trying to figure this out. God, why won't you help? Where are you in this? The temptation to fall into despair and to start believing things about God that are not true is incredibly strong. 
He says, godliness training begins with the right vision, the kind of vision that can sustain you through those hard times to keep going, to refill my heart and soul with, yes, God's glory matters, and I know he's there, and I know there will be a payoff. And maybe that only gives me the strength to take one more step, but right now I'll take it, and I'll take that step, and then we'll fight for tomorrow's grace tomorrow. On that day, when the finish line comes, you'll be so glad you didn't quit. Because you see, one thing the love of God gives us is the absolute confident assurance that it isn't all meaningless and that it does matter. I would love to be able to say that when we come to Jesus, he guarantees that we won't have bad things happen to us. We all know that's not true. But what does change when we come to Jesus is we are guaranteed that the bad things do not define our identity. That that doesn't write our story. That the difficulty of life blowing up or dreams dying doesn't have the final say. God does. And his say is infinitely better. That's the hope that we're talking about. Speaking of hope, that's where he goes next in verse 10. There's one more important aspect to this because this kind of long-term goal thing that the Bible's talking about is a very specific kind of thing. It's not a general thing. There's one huge assumption that makes all of this work, and that assumption is the gospel of Christ. Verse 10 is an important verse. Having said this saying is trustworthy and true, we need to focus on this long-term that will sustain us. We need to have the right vision. He says in verse 10, to this end we toil and strive. We're this goal-oriented, vision-oriented kind of people. If we're Christians, that's what we're supposed to be. But look what he says. We toil and strive. It's work. It's hard. But we do it because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That's an important verse. Now, let me, let me explain the end of it so we'll understand what's being said there. When he says that God is the Savior of all people, what that's simply saying, it's not that all people actually end up in heaven, unfortunately, because a lot of people choose to reject God. What he's saying is that there is only one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is the Savior, not just for some people, like he died for the sins of the whole world. That's what the Bible tells us. So everybody, atheist and Muslim and Christian and Hindu and rich and poor and men and women and, and all ethnicities and all skin colors and all tribes and tongues and nations, the Bible says there's only one Savior and that is Jesus Christ, but his salvation is enough to save everybody. So in that sense, he's the Savior of the whole world. But he says, and then particularly, the ESV Bible I'm reading says, especially, I should probably say particularly, of those who believe. In other words, he is the Savior in a very particular and specific way for a Christian. Somebody who has actually placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ doesn't approach Jesus just as the one who might save me or could save me. We approach Jesus Christ as the one who has saved me. And so there's this emphasis on belief. And friend, that's the gospel. The Apostle Paul is writing to a young man who is a Christian, so he's sort of assuming it in the text, but the assumption needs to be made clear. It's simply this, that when Jesus Christ came as a man, he came to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That is, I am a sinner who doesn't deserve God's love because I've done horrible things that I should pay for, but Jesus pays for it for me. And I didn't ask him to, and I didn't give him anything for it, and there's no reason for him to do it. It is surely his grace and his love. I don't deserve it, but he's taken my shots for me. Now, because he has done that, my personal sins can be forgiven, expunged, wiped away because of Jesus Christ. If I do one thing and one thing only, and the word here is believe. It means trust. It means trust. I've got to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, your death was in my place. I accept that. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve your love, but I receive it. And I'm trusting that your death on the cross is paid for my sins. Will you accept me, unworthy as I am, love me, and take me to heaven with you because of what you've done, not what I've done. That kind of a conversation with Jesus is what really begins the Christian life. And here's the great thing. When I've started that kind of Christian life with God, it rearranges all of my goals and my priorities, and it rearranges my long-term vision. Earlier in the verse, verse 10, the middle of the verse, he says, we have our hope set on the living God. Hope is an important word in the Bible. It, it actually means confidence. It's not like hope 
the way we use the word hope today, like I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but I would like it to happen. Like I hope the Seahawks beat the Cowboys and move on to the playoffs, but they didn't last week. No, 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 this is like, I hope I'm going to get to heaven, but I'm not really sure. No, 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 that's not what this is. This is my hope, in other words, my confidence. I know I will be with God for all eternity because of what Jesus did, not me. It's a confidence that I know good things are coming that I don't deserve. Our hope is put in God. So here's the point. The gospel turns our motivation for godliness training totally upside down. With physical training, like, I go to the gym because I want to get healthy. I'm going to take it on myself to make some choices and get healthy. And a lot of people just carry that right over into their religious experience. And they're like, okay, I'm going to try to be a better Christian. I'm going to try to live a better life so that maybe God will bless me more. Like, if I do my part, he'll do his part. That's not what this is. Verse 10 totally flips that upside down and says, you know what? As Christians, we we toil and strive. I'm making up words here. We toil and we strive because we already know God is going to embrace us. It's all grace. You see, the person who looks at the gospel of Jesus and says, oh, Jesus paid for my sins? Cool, I don't have to do anything. Good deal, I'll take it. And then they sit back and do nothing? They haven't understood the gospel of Jesus. When you understand how much God has loved you and what he's laid down for you and you put your whole life in those hands, it will radically transform who you are so that the motive becomes, how can I press further into God's love? How can I put him more on display? And that leads to questions about godliness training. How can I believe the right stuff and live the right way? Why? Not because I'm trying to get God to love me. No. But because I know no matter what happens, God has already accepted me. And there's tremendous freedom and joy in that. So the gospel reverses our motivation and it gives us the right vision for godliness training, which is the most important thing. The next two, a little bit more quickly. Godliness training then involves, according to this passage, right doctrine. Once we have the right vision, we have the right goal, we have the right relationship with God and we know where we're headed and he has given us purpose and meaning, then like, how do I live more for him? Well, I need to make sure I'm focusing on right doctrine. This is repeated numerous times throughout this passage, verse 11. Um, The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Make sure that you're believing right stuff and you're teaching the Christians in your church to believe right stuff so they can tell the difference between true ideas about God and false ideas about God. He repeats the same thing in verse uh, 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture so that people hear the Bible and then also to exhortation and teaching. Unpack the meaning of Scripture like we're doing right now. We're trying to figure out how does it apply to us. Like all this stuff is important. Make sure you're believing right things about God. Make sure you know that like when you go into the grocery store, there's a ton of food and you could buy any of it, but some of it's really good for you and some of it's really not. Do you know how to tell the difference? Well, anybody can learn to tell the difference, but you got to learn that. So learn it. Some people say one thing about God. Some people say another. You could buy any of those things, but they're not all right. Do you know the difference? Know God's word and understand how to tell the truth from the falsity. A lot of good ways to do this. Um, Let me just mention real briefly that um, Bible reading plans are tremendous. Um, This is a great time of year to start a new Bible reading plan if you want. Some of the guys in my community life group are reading the Bible in a year together uh, using uh, a Bible app. We often kind of talk about that in our group, like, hey, are you keeping up on your reading? We just want to encourage each other because we all have the same goal. Uh, Lately, we've kind of taken it up a notch. Um, Gavin's been asking us, like, okay, now, did you actually get anything out of your Bible reading this week? I'm like, oh, I was supposed to do that? Actually, seriously, it's been really good because sometimes I'm like, man, I'm just blasting through reading the Bible and it's like not really penetrating, you know, and I can go on like that for weeks and weeks and not get anything out of the Bible. So like a couple times this last week, I'm like, man, God, before I do my Bible reading in the morning, like I, I pray real quick, help me learn something here. I did that, I think twice this week. Maybe I'll do it all seven days at some point. I'm still working on it, okay? But like I'm actually getting something out of it. These are just simple ways that as church members we can help each other. Like what are we learning? What is God's word telling us? By the way, this Wednesday night theology class that we're doing, um, if I want to push this fitness analogy and, and assume that the church is a little bit of a gym, that's like our Wednesday night Pilates class, okay? Um, you can go learn some theology. I don't know, maybe you can get Jim and, and Paul to do Pilates too. I don't know if you guys are open to that. You can talk to them about that. I might pay to see that, but that's a different thing. Um, Sorry. Seriously, um, we're talking about the doctrine of sin and Christ and the atonement. What does all of that mean? 
I run into a lot of Christians who have a vague idea of what that means. They couldn't explain it for their life. It's not super difficult, but it's worth spending some time like trying to figure out what does the Bible say about all that stuff and how does it matter? These are just simply classes that you, you learn that kind of stuff. It will go way far in helping you discern truth from error for the rest of your life. So, right doctrine, lots of ways to get involved in that. Lastly, he urges him to focus not only on right vision and right doctrine, but also on right living. On right living. Again, this is repeated several times at the end of this passage. Um, verse 12, he not only said in verse uh, 11, command to teach these things, but then he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was evidently younger than a lot of the people in his church. Uh, but he says, set the believers, other Christians, an example in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. You know what he tells them? Don't just preach the right stuff, live it. <laughs> Practice what you preach and live it out before the members of your church so that they can see not only what the right answers are, but how the right answers shape a life so that we're actually applying the answers, that we're living it out. It's like exercise. Now that I'm learning how I should live, am I actually living that way? What does it mean to take the truths of God and put them into practice? That's what so much of our community life group discussions are focused on. They're less Bible studies in order to figure out what God's Word is saying, and there are more responses to the Sunday morning message. We've heard what God's Word says. How are we going to put this into practice? How do we interface with that, wrestle with that? How do we live it out? Such an important example. Also on Wednesday, is our biblical manhood, womanhood class that we're starting up this week. That's kind of what that one's all about. There is going to be some, like, what does the Bible teach about who we are as men and women? But man, to say that that's a confusing issue in this culture is an understatement. I think it always has been. It definitely still is. And we're going to proceed under the assumption that God has spoken clearly about these things and that his word and what he has said is good. And so with that in mind, we're just going to dive in and try to figure out, yeah, what did God say? And by the way, what did God really say versus what we just may have thought he said? Like, we're going to put all those questions on the table and open up the Bible, but it's really going to be focused a lot on, like, what does this mean? How do we live this out? Does it really mean this or only that? Did God give women a bum deal? Did God give men a bum deal? Is God good or not? Does God want me to only do this or not do that? I mean, there's so many questions around this. This is a time to just put it all on the table and figure out how can we live the truths of God's word as best we understand them. So godliness training involves right vision anchored in the fact that God has already accepted me, right doctrine, knowing right things about God, and right living, living them out. Verse 16 kind of sums it all up. He sums it all up at the beginning of that verse. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. I've been looking forward to this Sunday for several reasons, one of which is that that verse in particular for the last several years has been so important to me as I've just watched things that have happened in the lives of individual people that I know and kind of the church world around our country and places where churches blow up and get off track. It's like, man, I just keep coming back to that. First Timothy 4.16. Keep a watch on yourself, your life, and on the teaching. Are you believing and teaching right things about God or lies? Make sure that that's right. And are you living out what you're believing, or are you just leaving that kind of in your head and you're still out living for yourself? Almost every time a church gets off track, one or both of those things is, 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 is to blame. We've either believed wrong things about God, or we're living in a way that's not consistent with who he is. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Friends, I guess I'd end this way. Godliness training for us as Christians. This is our message just for, for our church. It doesn't, it doesn't start with just the discipline to read and study the Bible more although it entails that. It doesn't start there. Nor does it start with a determination to spend more time serving people or sharing the gospel, although it likely entails all of those things. It actually starts at the foot of the cross. It starts with understanding Jesus Christ shed his blood to save our sins. It starts at the communion table. And it turned out that this was a fantastic week to experience communion together as a church, which is what we're going to do right now. Communion is the place where we as a church gather as God's family here at Harvest to dwell on, remember, and celebrate the hope that we have in God who is our Savior. 
This is a very simple act that Jesus uh, instituted for his followers the night before he died. He took a piece of bread, and he, he had them all break a piece off, and he says, this is, symbolizes my body, which is about to be broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine, and he drank it, and he passed it around, and he said, this is like my blood shed for you. He said, remember my sacrifice. And he says, do this as often as you gather together. And so for thousands of years, churches all over the world have been doing the very same thing we're about to do now. The simple act of eating a piece of bread and drinking from a cup, but it symbolizes something so powerful that Jesus Christ has accepted me, shed his blood to pay for my sins. I deserve none of it, but God's love is great for me. And I'm putting all my hope in that love. And so what this means is when you participate in communion, um, you are announcing, without even speaking any words, that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. And so if you are here with us this morning, and maybe you don't really understand what it means to have a relationship with God, or maybe you do and you're like, yeah, I don't think I'm actually a Christian, I haven't trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior yet, um, I want you to feel very encouraged to be here, we're delighted you're here, and feel very comfortable in these next few minutes. When the communion elements get passed around, which the ushers will pass around in just a moment, you can just let them pass by, and don't partake in them when we do that. That's totally fine, nobody's really looking around anyway. Because to partake in communion is to say, I'm a Christian, I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. If you are a Christian, I want to encourage us not to do this just as a rote thing that, oh yeah, we do this periodically, here we go again, it's another religious thing. This is a celebration of the fact that we have hope. Hope that sustains through the darkest thing and says, my circumstances will not write the the last line of my life. The love and the grace of God will. And I can hold on to that. So I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward, and I'm going to pray for our time. They're going to distribute the bread first. Just go ahead and grab one and hold them until everybody has received, and then I'll come back forward, and we'll take it together. The worship team is going to come up uh, during this time, just as soon as I'm done praying. And while the bread is being passed around, they're just going to play some soft music in the background. It's going to be fairly quiet in the room, and that's just to create a little bit of a space for reflection. So I'll encourage you maybe just to, to kind of reflect on what we've heard from God's Word this morning. Uh, maybe to just even pray silently where you're at and ask God, like, God, if there's something here I'm supposed to see, help me see it. If there's a sin I know in my life I need to confess, man, just silently where you are, confess it to him and receive his forgiveness for it. However God wants to do business with you, take the next uh, few moments while the bread's being passed and just reflect. And then when we come back together, we will sing and partake in communion. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. And we receive these elements now as not only a memory and a celebration of your goodness, but an anchor point for our hope.